Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod, the daily podcast brought to you by the team behind Squawk Box. NYC, this is CNBC Control 2. CNBC's essential morning show. PCR 2. Every day, get the best stories, debate, and analysis from the biggest names in business and politics. All right, we're coming to it next. Today, rescuing WeWork and paying out the CEO. That's unbelievable. They'd offer him more money to go away. You're effectively paying him twice. Economist Art Laffer. Whenever we've lowered the rates on the rich, revenue's gone way up. These people can get around your taxes, Joe. The man behind the Laffer curve weighs in on the ideal tax rate for the 1%. And Senator Chuck Grassley on phase one. When you consider that China's 15% of the world's economy, we're 22%. That's 37% added together. When they get together, it's going to have an influence on the whole globe. The devil's in the details of the China trade deal. We've got those stories and more, including new leadership at Under Armour. I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. It's Tuesday, October 22nd, 2019. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back, you buy in three, two, one, cue, please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. First up on today's podcast, WeWork. It's been a wild nine-year ride for this company. A journey from $47 billion to less than 10, all overseen by an eccentric and sometimes erratic leader, Adam Newman. Also at the table for the last nine years, SoftBank. The company that invested in Uber and in Slack is also one of WeWork's largest backers. And now it's trying to save its own investment. Here's Andrew with the story. Well, part of it. Big news uh, in the last 24 hours. WeWork's board now weighing two competing financial rescue offers. WeWork expected to accept an offer from uh, SoftBank to take a controlling stake in the company. It's already poured more than $10 billion into that company. And the decision could come as early as today. Let's walk you through both of the packages because they're fascinating unto themselves. Uh, the rescue package from SoftBank includes accelerating a $1.5 billion investment that it had planned to make next year and then buying up to an additional $3 billion in shares that are held by other investors. Now, as part of this, SoftBank would also put together $5 billion in loans from a consortium of financial institutions that would also include itself. And as part of all of that, sources say that SoftBank will pay founder Adam Newman around $200 million to leave the board, give up his voting shares, and support SoftBank's I mean, that's, takeover. That's unbelievable. It's they, unbelievable because you're paying... they more money to go away. This guy already tapped out at the top with so the you're $700 pay, million So you're effectively out. paying him twice. You're going to pay for the shares. You're going to pay He's him separately. He's the only one who's made money on this deal. And meanwhile... Everybody else has lost their shirt. And meanwhile, not only that... They will begin layoffs almost immediately of of 2,000 people. I don't know if you saw the other reports that came out yesterday, which is that one of the reasons they delayed some of the earlier layoffs is they couldn't afford the severance for them. So you have... So they're going to wait and see if they were going to bankruptcy before they So you're going to wait here for Adam Newman to take his $200 million to go home. I'm told, by the way, that that $200 million would keep him from filing for personal bankruptcy. 
So it gets more interesting. Now, J.P. Morgan has a second offer on the table. This is the firm that was going to be what's called lead left for the IPO, which, of course, is no longer happening. Uh, they've put together a package that would uh, add up to about $5 billion and bring together a group of outside investors, this time including who was our guest host on Friday, and, and uh, we had tried to push him on it, but Barry Sternlich's uh, Starwood Capital uh, is part of that group. The proposal consists of several parts, uh, including new bonds, some with uh, some pretty high interest rates. SoftBank's offer separately, we should just tell you, and this is the most sort of astounding part of it all, the whole company would be worth only $8 billion. That's down from the $47 billion valuation before it attempted to go public. And, of course, more than the entire total amount of money that SoftBank unto itself has put into this How, company. They put in $10 billion? They're, t- they're in for 10 Already. Before in for 10 already. Five. You're going to put in an additional 1.5. Then you'll put an additional three. And, and then you're going to capture about $5 billion from, from other outside investors who will take on a debt piece of this. And then it's going to be worth $8 billion. And then it'll be worth less, right. So you have to... The so it's gamble, worth negative how much right now? It will ultimately be worth... Right now, it would be worth... It'd be worth about... Uh, they'd be down probably about $5 billion. Uh, just on a cash wow. basis. Sure. I mean, fortunes can go south. I understand that. But it, it just... Listening to that makes me think, I, I'll never buy an IPO. I mean, if, if, if the people looking at WeWork and thinking about bringing it public and talking about certain valuations, if the range was $8 billion to $47 billion, how would you ever get involved in it? somebody in, throw in around IPO a number like 60 at some point when they were trying to tell By the way, to go public? Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley at some points were talking about 60, 80. Yeah, I believe either Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs at one point had a number that they had presented to the board or to the company at least. Uh, this is now probably 12 billion, months ago. It was over $100 billion on the high end. $100 billion. I wonder why the IPO window closed. What, what, now, the other thing I think is interesting. So, our, our, our buddy Newman. So, it, not only did he take a lot of money out, but he really was living high. Too. With, with everything he took off, he has no money left. Did he, what, he blew he it all. On, he overextended himself so he, like some He bought crazy. at least five homes. He had a Maybach and a driver running him around. You see all what over. I'm saying, though? Yeah. No, I mean, is he, the he had, company was paying for the, the private jet. The company's paying for the private jet. He should be happy with the $200 million, everything else. Are you kidding? That's with. a huge deal. Yeah. I think it's Give, that's what given, I can't by the way, all of the loans that he, he has loans outstanding from JP Morgan, Credit Suisse, and I believe UBS, but I know it's JP Morgan, Credit Suisse, and those were collateralized against the shares. Right. So, as the right. Shares so have, he was all leveraged. Though. He was completely leveraged. If you can raise $200 million, Yes. Um, yeah, for, for, for out, I'm out of here. If you want to, you know, you've talked about that, how you'd like to, you know, eventually. Kickstarter get, campaign? No, no, no. Just if you want me out of here. If you can, with your friends, raise 200, I will also exit. Uh, I'll take that deal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 200, 200 pop for everybody. 200 cash. I might take it too, by the way. Yeah. You might take it too. <laughs> yeah. Right, let's both work on it. So you, got, you know what? You have a much better chance, I think, with the people you know. I think just from deal book and all that stuff. You know what I mean? That, that's nothing. What? 200. 200. Pocket change. Pocket change. Pocket lint. I just got an email from a hedge fund manager with the subject line, I can raise 200. 200 million. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, like a GoFundMe with your people on Twitter or, or all your, that should be easy. I mean, I know I could raise that money with my, with my folks. For I, you. You could. Yeah. We'll have to work In on it. In fact, my folks probably have more. Wait a second. Actually, it's, it's tough to Am say. Am I reading this right? I'm stuck here either way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's tough to say who could raise we'll more. We'll share. <laughs> do, okay. do the elitist liberals actually have more money than the right-wing uh, greedy types that, that, that back media think? Which, who has more money? 
Oh, this will be good. That's a good question. On the journal piece over the weekend, the, the, the elitist rich people are now Democrats. And all the working class normal people are, right. are now... Um, You've always represented yourself as a working class... Stiff. Working class man. <laughs> so yeah, I try. I'm from Ohio. You're from where? Scarsdale or something, right? I'm not driving a Porsche. Well, let, <laughs> let the bids begin. As it turns out, it was SoftBank's rescue bid that won WeWork. If there's any winning to be had, at least. The story broke throughout today's broadcast. Here's Becky. Joining us right now on the Squawk News line with the latest is Maureen Farrell, IPO and capital markets reporter at the Wall Street Journal. She broke this news. And Maureen, tell us a little bit about the details. It looks like SoftBank has won the bid from the board. What, what, what does that deal entail? Sure. So the deal entails, as we reported some of this yesterday, they're going to take over the company for about $8 billion. Probably the most stunning part of this deal is the payout to Adam Newman, the co-founder and CEO. It looks like as part of this, he's going to get a package worth about $1.7 billion. And that's divided, it sounds like, into about three parts. He'll be able to sell about a billion dollars of stock into this tender offer that they're going to launch. They're going to pay about $3 billion. Employees, investors can sell. Adam, based on his stake, it'll be up to roughly a billion dollars. They're also going to pay up his loan. He has a $500 million loan that was coming due. Um, They're going to give him a new loan. They're also going to give him a, quote-unquote, consulting contract right. of almost $200 million. Maureen, why are, why are WeWork shareholders and employees not going to sue Adam Newman and sue SoftBank for a deal that clearly um, advantages him in a way that, even with his controlling stake, um, is, is a very questionable approach? I think it's, I mean, it's, far too early to say what happens. I think that the issue, it seemed like during the negotiations, was that he had the power. He had this voting control. So they needed to find some way to get him to relinquish that. Our understanding is that consulting contract was one part of it, um, the loan forgiveness. But I think it's a good question. It seems like, you know, it's a terrible look on a week that they're going to fire 2000 people to be taking a hundred eighty five million dollar consulting arrangement. I can understand potentially the billion dollar component of this, given that that's the that would be his own equity stake in the company. But then when you add on top of that an advantaged loan and then one hundred eighty five million dollars in cash, you know, for all of those employees who were hoping to participate in this IPO, who, who were led down a path by a, a Pied Piper that, that clearly uh, steered them in a terrible direction, it raises lots of uh, moral questions, ethical questions, and why, frankly, SoftBank would actually even participate in something like this. I, I, it's, a good, it's a good point, and there are huge questions around this. I mean, a month and a half ago, we were talking about, maybe two months ago, a $20 billion valuation in an IPO. As you said, employees, investors could have sold shares. And that was even far below where they last raised new money, the $47 billion. So we've seen this rapidly shrinking valuation for this company. And yes, employees are going to be let go in the coming months. 2000, you know, who knows where that ends Um and their valuation of their shares has diminished right. rapidly. And, and now that Masasun is going to look like he's rewarding an individual who, frankly, frankly, has done tremendous damage to him personally, his own reputation, and the SoftBank Vision Fund and SoftBank itself, 
How are other founders, do you think, going to look at this? Are they just going to look at him as free money? Well, it's, it's going to be interesting what other founders look at. I think that another huge question this raises is, can you give founders these 10 to 1, these you know, elevated voting shares? Every founder has wanted them. For the most part, founders have been given this voting control. And now you see what you have to do even when things go really wrong to get a founder out of this voting control. I mean, this is, this is such an extreme example but it's hard to imagine that this is not a tipping point where these kind of uh, voting shares, these sort of founder, um, the really founder-friendly terms. It's, it's a real there, question. There are so many SoftBank founders. There are so many founders that SoftBank had invested in, frankly, who were disgusted with Adam Newman. I'm not. I would be surprised if they could they could stomach this type of kind of transaction on a morning like this, because one of the reasons that he was willing to actually get out of this uh, deal and turn on Adam Newman was because other founders were disgusted by it. But for him to now be paying him, I, I don't get it. But Hey, Maureen, uh, we are out of time today, but we want to thank you for calling in. Again, Maureen well, Farrell. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Breaking news, uh, Under Armour uh, now just crossing the wires. Courtney Reagan joins us uh, with the details. What's up, Courtney? Hi, good morning, Joe. So here's some breaking news from Under Armour. Kevin Plank, who, of course, is the company's founder and CEO, will be transitioning to the role of executive chairman and brand chief as Under Armour elevates Patrick Frisk, the company's current president and chief operating officer, to the role of CEO. These changes are effective as of January 1st, 2020. Now, Plank, of course, has been the CEO of the company that he founded in his grandmother's basement since 1996, a company he ultimately took public in 2005, which makes Frisk just the second CEO in Under Armour's history. Now, Frisk did join Under Armour in July of 2017 from Aldo, where he was the CEO working there also with a company founder. And Frisk has been a key architect of this transformation plan. He's reinvigorated the supply chain. He's re-looked at their sourcing capabilities, even retargeted their customer. So that's been a critical role for him to play here, though, of course, there's still some work to be done. North American sales still haven't quite stabilized, and shares of Under Armour are down about 25% since the last earnings call when investors were really hoping to see a new trend for North American sales. And we have a first on CNBC interview here coming up on Squawk Box with both Kevin Plank and Patrick Frisk to talk about this new leadership change, the transition, and much, much more. But of course, again, to reiterate those headlines, Under Armour CEO Kevin Plank will be transitioning to the role of executive chairman and brand chief as Patrick Frisk is elevated to the role of president and chief operating officer as of January 1st. CNBC reporter Courtney Reagan caught up with Under Armour's Kevin Plank and Patrick Frisk in Baltimore. Here are the highlights from their conversation. There will be change. I mean, I'll be running the company day to day, but it also allows Kevin, you know, to become more strategic in terms of how we think about elevating product, how we think about, you know, big strategic marketing ideas. So I think it's a complementary thing. It's about, you know, running the play that we put in place, but then also complementing each other and allowing Kevin to do what he does really well and me to allow me to run the company, which I believe uh, I can do pretty well. So I said freedom. It's that 
you know, somebody needs to have their hands on the wheel, and you can't have two people yelling saying, go left, go right. <laughs> and so ultimately, like, I'm, I'm going to be there, and we'll make our, our, our inputs and our suggestions. We'll drive on a strategic basis. We'll make sure we're aligned with that. But Patrick, on a day-to-day basis, has to be able to, you know, turn that wheel. And that's where um, I think he's, a, you know, the ability to have a 30-plus year, most of which was spent in this industry, uh, veteran being able to come and join, having the, the ability to work together side-by-side the last two and a half years and really get to, you know, be in boardrooms together, you know, sweat together in gyms, like understand each other and just see the, uh, I think, the, the discipline in the machine. It's something that we're going to finish this this operational executional play for Under Armour. And meanwhile, we're going to continue to blow people's minds with the world's greatest product. But the plan is still the plan. You know, the way that we've crafted this together over the last two years is going to remain. Uh, we're going to continue down the path that we laid out at the Investor Day last year. And we're excited about that. We're excited about now, you know, doing this together and completing the play, like Kevin said. But we will be turning from defense to offense now. Cheese will be next. Next on Squawk Pod, taxing the rich. How much is enough or too much, depending on where you sit bracket-wise? Economist Art Laffer, inventor of the Laffer Curve, joins us next. I want to help the poor by jobs, not by trying to confiscate money from the rich. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Roll Pro A, up track, stand Andrew by. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. One, Q Andrew. Good morning. Welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We're live at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Becky Quick and Joe Kernan. And our guest host this hour is Sarat Zephi. He's managing partner and portfolio manager at Douglas C. Lane and Associates. Sarat's also, of course, a CNBC contributor. We've got a lot going on. What's the ideal rate for taxing wealthy Americans? Last week on the pod, we brought you a conversation with French economist Gabriel Zuckman, a tax advisor to both Elizabeth Warren's and Bernie Sanders' presidential campaigns. This is our wealth editor, Robert Frank, asking him a key question. The top optimal rate for taxing the very rich is 60%, 75%. For the top 1%, at least, no, 60%. Zuckman and his co-author on a new book, Emmanuel Saez, come to their 60% ideal thanks to analysis of something called the Laffer rate. That's the tax rate that would raise maximum revenue without creating widespread avoidance or discouraging the wealthy from working and earning. So, for a response, we called economist Art Laffer. Yep, that Laffer. His work was central to the policies of the Reagan administration in the 1980s, and most recently, he co-wrote Trumponomics with Stephen Moore. Art Laffer joined the Squawk Gang. Joe, Becky, Andrew, Robert Frank, and guest host Surat Zeti. Here's Joe. The man himself, Art Laffer, Laffer Art, whatever, of Laffer Associates. Art, uh, I'm going to, you know what, I'm going to start in in a little bit different way and just, just challenge you on all the notions that we've had for, you know, 300 years, but I, I still want to challenge you on this. What's the problem with moving some of the wealth that rich people have that they don't use for anything productive, let's say, and just solving a lot of the problems that we have here? Is it A, that, that, that goes against property rights and, and uh, Western culture in terms of being confiscatory, Or do you really believe that people will be less productive and work less if they know they're going to get taxed at a higher rate? 
What's the problem? Well, I don't know if they'll work less. I don't know if they'll work less, and I'm not worried about the justice idea here or the legal system. Then why system. don't we do it? That, we got problems. Aren't we got huge deficits. We've got people that need education. Well, yes. we've, got, we've got a lot of re- These guys don't need billions of dollars. Let's go. <laughs> we've done it before. Uh, we did it in the 1920s. We lowered the tax rates from 73% in 1920 to uh, 25% in 1929, and tax revenues from the rich went from about 30% of total tax revenues to 66%. Huge increase in tax revenues from the top 1%. The same thing happened under John F. Kennedy when we cut the highest tax rate from 91% to 70%. Revenues from the rich went way, way up. And the same thing had happened with Reagan when we cut the highest rate from 70% to 28%. Revenues from the rich went way, way up as a result of that. Uh, so, you know, when you just look at the very simple, straightforward evidence, in, in fact, if you substitute complex error for simple truth, whenever we rate, lowered the rates on the rich and rate tax rates on the rich, revenues have gone way up. These people can get around your taxes, Joe, and they really can. Warren Buffett, as he reported in the New York Times, which is a rarity, reported his income taxes. He paid $7 million in taxes in 2010, and his income, according to economists, was about $12 billion. Now, if you cut those regulations, restrictions, and rates, he'll pay his fair share. But he's just using the tax codes to take advantage of them, as they all do, and they always will. Uh, they aren't going to sit there and pay these exorbitant rates to Zuckman and to Saez and to Piketty and to we'll Mirlees and to uh, Slamrod. Yeah, of course they're going to find a way around it. They'll do inversions. They do all sorts of things. Why don't we just have a low-rate, broad-based, flat tax? Everyone pays the same rate and then use the income distribution of the spending to help the poor and the minorities, the disenfranchised, who we all want to help. That's not an issue. How about the one question percent- is, how do you do it? Yeah. How about one percenters that we talk about? What is that, five fifty, six hundred thousand a year or so? Uh, uh, it's about five hundred thousand. Probably, probably in that range. So they, so they don't... Um, they don't take advantage of a lot of loop. A lot of people, as we had Lee Cooper, work six months of the year for the government, and then they, whatever they make for the next six months sort of accrues to them. Yes, no one, but no one's talking about the 1%. What her taxes, remember, right. Right. is so for those over 50 million. But, but raising marginal rates, yeah. why is there a problem with going above where marginal rates? Would, that would that be where you'd really get some revenue because it would affect right. everyone, right? That Does it hurt? That and changes in capital gains, which is where a lot of the Democrats, other than right. if you're looking Sanders, at are going to just... Else. Look, let's just put capital gains where ordinary income. Let's tax, la- tax labor the same as capital. And that would generate, some say, even more right. revenue. So you but wouldn't but go up in more. So, but if you look at all this, what people don't talk about is cost of living, right? If you live in New York or California right. yeah. versus you live in Florida... So why doesn't anyone actually talk about, you know, like you said, if you're in the 1% and you're in the half yeah. a million to no, two it, million? No, it does differ. All right. we, uh, Mike Novogratz recently, I think this week, said, you know, the idea that these people making $50 million or more or the billionaires that are subject to that, this tax are afraid. He said, you're not victims. You're the richest people in the world. Can't these people that are worth $50 million or more afford two cents of every dollar beyond $50 million, given the amount that that would raise can't they afford it? And isn't there, there too much can. fear about it? Yeah, but they, you know, you're not going to get it from them voluntarily unless you lower rates and they think the tax codes are fair. 
you know, people don't like to be ripped off. And these rich people have earned the money. And you want to just tax them on the highest amounts. Art, and they don't want you to. Art, that assumes no enforcement. They don't. That assumes Art, you're, you're just assuming no enforcement. You don't think you enforce it? They can hire better lawyers and accountants and ex-IRS agents than you can. All right. Let me ask you a different They're question. Rich. For, forget about a wealth tax for a second. <laughs> forget about necessarily higher marginal rates. How would you feel about just the, the basic closing of uh, loopholes around step-up basis when it comes to uh, end of life, uh, 1031 exchanges for the, for the real estate folks, um, carried interest for, for, for the private equity folks? I mean, let's, just, let's, let's do the low-hanging fruit. You, you game for that? Because I think historically of you have not Of course I'm been. with it. Andrew, I've always been for that. Okay. I've always been forgetting all your deductions, exemptions. I did Jerry Brown's flat tax, where we lowered the rate to 13%, getting rid of all exemptions, deductions, et cetera, including individual deductions, all of that, on the first dollar to the last dollar, and just let it go. They'll all comply with the tax codes because they believe they're fair, and they won't try to get around it. Now, of course, some of them will, Andrew, but not all of them. That's what you want to do with your taxes. Warren Buffett, as I said in 2010, paid $7 million in taxes and earned $12 billion. I mean, and it's all fair. Create, I mean, he's a genius. He does Art, it. Before but we that's go, what we want to do, not use police. It, before we go, the yeah. Laffer rate, what, is, what do you think is the highest level that you could tax the wealthy before there's too much avoidance and too little productivity? What is the highest rate? The highest rate we could possibly do it right yes. now. I don't know what it would be, but I'll tell you, it'd be 13% if you got all rid of all the deductions, exemptions, exclusions, just like Jerry Brown did. That would be the perfect rate right, to you do You only want to talk about how low you can go. We'll I just want to talk about how high you can go. Okay. I want to get the growth up. I want to help the poor by jobs, not by trying to confiscate money from the rich. Art, thank you. Always good to see you. Uh, You're we wonderful, return, guys. By the way, your interview with Zuckman was great. Coming up. Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley is increasingly optimistic about a U.S.-China trade deal, but he's not sure whether China will hold up its end of the bargain. So this president has been as tough as any president has ever been on China, and we ought to be thankful that he is. Picture this. It's Saturday morning and you're on your John Deere compact tractor. You're effortlessly breaking ground on your new landscaping project. Next, you're moving piles of rocks just by moving a lever. And now, you're enjoying the warmth of the sun as you clear brush across your pasture. We could keep trying to put you in the moment, but to really understand everything you can do with a John Deere compact tractor, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box here on CNBC Live from the Nasdaq Market Site uh, in Times Square. I'm Joe Kernan along with Becky Quick and Andrew Ross Sorkin. U.S. Trade Rep Robert Lighthizer says a phase one trade deal with China could happen as soon as next month. Joining us right now to talk uh, about trade and so much more, Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa, chairman of the Finance Committee. Good morning to you. Um, Some people are calling this a skinny deal. 
Are you in favor of, of, of a skinny deal if it doesn't get you some of the bigger issues that I know you've been talking about? Well, it seems like it's starting down the road of some of the big issues like uh, stealing our intellectual property, <coughs> trade secrets, uh, manipulating their currency and uh, transfer technology, but only partially going down that road. But that's a pretty good start. Uh, so obviously, I, I'm happy that they're getting serious about that. The trouble is, we don't really know until, you know, you get, uh, we can sign an agreement in Chile, let's say, uh, next month. But uh, we won't know on those things, maybe for uh, a few years, are they really abiding in good faith? But on the agricultural stuff, when they are committed to buying $50 billion of agricultural products uh, over the next two years, we'll be able to measure that for sure. So I think you have to have some hesitancy and some disbelief about how, whether China is really negotiating in good faith. But at least uh, it takes some of the anxiety out of the, uh, that results from the uncertainty of trade and uh, getting some certainty is pretty important not only to China, their economies hurt worse than ours, but ours, but when you consider that China's 15% of the world's economy, we're 22%, that's 37% added together. When they get together, it's going to have an influence on the whole globe. Uh, Senator, though, let me tell you, uh, and I don't want to put words in his mouth, but we had Rick Scott on the program earlier today, and he doesn't believe uh, that the Chinese, frankly, to some degree, are even worth negotiating with right now because he has a view that they are not going to abide by anything that they, they, they even they sign their name to. I think that uh, that's a realistic approach, and you heard some of that caution in my answer to the first question, but we're going to know on agriculture right away. If they don't deliver, we can measure that in the dollars they buy or don't buy. What is your sense, though, of, of the bigger pieces that you've been talking about? Meaning, how do you think we get there? Can, they, can that get done uh, over the next 12 months in an election year? Or do you think that whatever leverage we had or have, whatever leverage we have or don't have, that, there is, that we've actually lost some leverage in this next 12-month period as, as the Chinese wait to see uh, what, what the leadership okay. of this country looks like? Well, obviously, your question is in regard to phase two and phase three. Right. And I don't know whether there'll be a phase two or phase three next year. But uh, the, the, uh, if this agreement is signed in Chile, uh, then it doesn't have to go through the Congress. So it won't be affected like USMCA could be if we don't get it done this year. It's into a presidential election year, make it more questionable. The president signs this. Uh, does China live up to it is about the only question you have to ask. Um, do, do you have a view, and, and we've talked about it on this show a lot, that uh, if uh, one of your other colleagues, Elizabeth Warren, were, were, were to be in the White House, that she would be even more hawkish on China? Well, I think you've got to look at, it's pretty hard to beat this president compared to three previous presidents, two Democrats and one Republican. They all knew that China was not living up to their obligations under the World Trade Organization. They didn't do anything about it. Uh, didn't even uh, label him as a, a currency manipulator like this president has done. So this president has been as tough as any president has ever been on China. And we ought to be thankful that he is. Even the farmers of Iowa that are hurting to some degree as a result of the uncertainty of these trade agreements, 
uh, has, still has given the president some leeway on dealing with China because they know China has been cheating us for 20 years, not living up to the obligations of the World Trade Organization. So uh, I think you've got to look at it that whether it's Elizabeth Warren or somebody else down the road, uh, this president has started us in the right direction in regard to China. Senator, we want to thank you. That's the show for today. Thanks for listening. Who has more money? Oh, this would be good. That's a good question. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, tell your friends. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us. That'll help other listeners find Squawk Pod. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.